When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On September 8th, 2015, the first episode of Set Listing Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. During this month, I would like to share feedback from my listeners. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments for me or any of my guests, please send me an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 469-249-2442. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lusting Bruce sticker. Depending on your level, you can get early access to episodes and unedited videos of my discussions with guests. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes, and now on to the show. Oh yeah, it was a. There was a. Actually, my mom had a great story when she was in maybe middle school or grade school in Chicago. When Sam Cook died, she was going to school that day, and she couldn't even get there because the procession of people going to his funeral, like she couldn't go, so she ended up in the procession at his funeral with like thousands of other people, and that's how beloved he was. And I, it wasn't until years later, after my mom was doing it, I was like, I saw Malcolm X, and I was like, who is singing that song? She's that Sam Cooke. I'm like, oh, okay. And listen, the way he sounds on those tracks, it's one of those rare artists where he just sounds effortless, no matter what emotional peaky, the 50s pop stuff, or really soulful. Like, it, it just seemed like he was pitch perfect and comfortable and smooth with every type of style or every type of version of singing he did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, though we are getting off the Bruce train. 
though I'm sure he'll come up as he normally does. I have a new friend, Haji, join me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Tell us a little about yourself. Uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a uh, writer, comedian, as well as a music producer, which I've been doing for a number, I don't even know how many years. I think I started in college, so it's been a while. So those are my primary areas, writing, comedy, and then doing some comedy, music, and producing for different artists as well. What? Okay, I'm not going to skip. I'll start at the beginning because now I have all kinds of questions about how do you get in that gig? What do you do? So we'll get to that part of the journey. Um, But I always like to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what kind of music was your family listening to when you were younger? Ah, okay. I grew up in Chicago, uh, originally from the south side of Chicago. So my family was mainly, I guess on my aunt, she'd be more like Motown, that type of stuff. My mom okay. was always really into Nina Simone and Sam Cooke, who are actually two of my favorite singers still to this day. So I used to hear a lot of that. Tracy Chapman, my mom's also a big Prince fan, which I had to, Prince is actually my favorite musical artist of all time. So that's the range of stuff I would listen to. And then my grandparents, it was like just like old blues stuff, which never clicked with me. It was those things where you're like seven years old, you're at your grandparents and just hear this weird music and you're just like, What's granddad playing? What, what, I, I don't know what this is. It was more like that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And, and is he going, can you feel it? Can you feel it? And you're like, yeah, I guess, grandpa. Like, but my granddad, he talked like really slow. So it wouldn't be like, can you feel it? would be like, do you like it? And I just, I knew he wanted me to say, yeah. So I just nod my head. Sure. I have no idea what this is. This is like the 80s. So I'm starting getting into hip hop. And I'm like, this doesn't sound like anything I'm into. But now I look back, I'm like, oh, it was good. It was good music. It just wasn't my gig right now. I love you telling that story because I often talk that if you oversimplify, my guests fall into two categories. The people that embrace their parents' music and Mm -hmm. then when they grew as a teenager and college age, they just expanded their their understanding or the ones that totally rejected their parents or in your case grandparents music and then when you're 30 you go that johnny cash guy might have a little something or or oh yeah this bird they may know a few things yeah that's great yeah and when you mentioned johnny cash one of my favorite songs just in general is hurt yeah but i read at first i read the i I saw it was for a movie trailer was for logan yeah movie logan i remember hearing like what the heck is that because it just fit perfectly and I read a whole book about this guy who started to have to Def Jam, long beard. Uh, I'm completely yeah, blanking on Ruben. This yeah, Rick, Rick Rubin. Rubin. Yeah, Rick Rubin. Yeah, about Rick Rubin and how he got that song and how Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails doesn't let stuff be sampled. He doesn't like it at all. But he he came to him and was like, "Can Johnny Cash do your song?" He's like, oh, Johnny Cash, the man in black. Johnny Cash. He's, yeah, he, he can take a gander at my song. Go ahead. And he loved how it ended up, and he signed off on the producing it. I love that song. I love that song. It was a perfect kind of way to put a kind of a recap on his career and that video is just, oh, it brings tears to your eyes. And then I've seen the interview too, where Trent Reznor, I didn't know I was writing a Johnny Cash song, right? Like I had (laughs) no thought that this was. And yeah, I just, the idea of that is great. Oh, I can't remember the guy, Suicide, did Dream Baby Dream, and Bruce did a cover of it, 
and the guy who I wish I could remember the artist, but the writer recently died the past few years and he asked for Bruce's version of his dream baby dream to be played. He loved Bruce's cover of that much. So I, I think it's amazing when you can, an, an artist, I guess the most, one of the most famous commercial is Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. And just, it, it keeps recreating. And many people like Whitney Houston, it became her own. And Dolly's, yeah, I'm fine. I'm oh, yeah. fine with that. Yeah. She cashed all those checks. He's like, she I'm cashed, perfectly fine. Uh, I wrote yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like it. Absolutely. So I love Sam Cooke. Sam yeah. Cooke is just, I know there's a lot of other artists out there that they talk about how smooth they are, but when I listen to Sam Cooke records and everything from Saturday night or just some of the simple or a change is going to come, I just am like, God, this guy talk about someone losing too soon. Oh yeah. It was a, it was a, actually my mom had a great story when she was in maybe middle school or grade school in Chicago, when Sam Cooke died, she was going to school that day. And she couldn't even get there because the procession of people going to his funeral, like she couldn't go. So she ended up in the procession at his funeral with like thousands of other people. And that's how beloved he was. And I, it wasn't until years later after my mom was doing it, I was like, I saw Malcolm X. And I was like, who was singing that song? She's that Sam Cooke. I'm like, oh, okay. And I remember yeah. listening to him. The way he sounds on those tracks, it's one of those rare artists where he just sounds effortless. No matter what emotional peak he's the 50s pop stuff or really soulful, like it, it just seemed like he was pitch perfect and comfortable and smooth with every type of style or every type of version of scene he did. Harjeet, the effortless is the perfect world word. It just is, it just, it's almost like I turned a spigot and this beautiful music comes out and it's yeah. just, it, and it's not that easy, right? As you no. know, it doesn't do that. I worked with a woman, her name was Mary and we were playing some Sam Cooke and she says, I wanted to go kill that woman that for the longest time. She goes, I would, if I'd had a chance to murder her, I would have. I can't believe it. So I was like, Mary, calm down. Where can, I, I love to ask this question when I have Bruce guests. So I'm going to turn it around. Can you remember when you first heard Prince and what about his music spoke to you? I don't know. If, well, I think the first things I was hearing because I had cousins who were all older than me and like I had cousin Carmen and she was really into Prince. So she's like maybe seven or eight years. So I think I ended up hearing it just as a kid, his really early 80s, like maybe around Little Red Corvette or something around there. But I remember the first time it hit me was when I heard When Doves Cry. And I just remember that's also one of my mom's favorite songs of his. But I just remember hearing it being something felt like sounded perfect but it was sounded off because there's no bass line in it and i remember listening to being like this is exceedingly good and it like it's one of those songs just stuck in my head for a long long time it still does so that's probably the first one i think where i was really like oh my god this is this guy has something really different yeah and that's someone else we lost way too early i remember a few days after he passed the whole e street band came out each of them wearing something purple and they did that scorching version of oh, purple rain that and Niels Lofgren just tore it up on the and also circulating after he passed there was a clip of him being interviewed and he talked about 
you learn from the best. And he was talking about Springsteen. I'd love to be backstage watching Bruce and the band perform. He says, and that's seeing the best perform helps you to play his game. I The other thing I always, as a Springsteen fan, everyone, we get this every July, right, for the Super Bowl. Oh, oh. Best Super Bowl halftime show. Best Super Bowl halftime show. And, and, uh, and of course, being a Springsteen fan, a lot of my Springsteen fans will go, oh, Bruce. And I'm like, Prince may have something to say about that. Yeah. You too should be in the discussion too. Yeah. I just, when it's raining and you're doing Purple Rain, it's like yeah. God is wanting <laughs> to help you. Yeah, that's all I was saying. He, he had, uh, Prince had a little extra help there because that was the timing of the rain, the fact he kept going through it, and the song, it just popped up that song and it's raining like that. It was too perfect. Yeah, yeah. it was. Once you discovered him, is that one of those things where you just started to do a deep dive into his career? Not at first, because this was the 80s when I was first hearing him. So I didn't do a deep dive. I just hear stuff and be like, God, this guy's good. So I never bought it. I never had a bunch of money to buy a bunch of records. But I remember when I started doing a deep dive, my other cousin, Lee, he had a wedding. He had a really good friend. I'm blanking on his name. But he was, at that time, probably the biggest Prince fan I've ever heard. He was just going catalog and telling me, He's the best guitar player. He plays the drums. He sings background vocals, lead vocals, writes everything. And I'm like, at this point, I'm already like in the music and producing and doing mixtapes and stuff. So I'm like, he does everything. I'm like, the only guy I've ever heard of who really does everything is Stevie Wonder. And he was telling me like, no, he's, he's right there with Stevie Wonder. He does everything. That's when I started, okay, I got to download these back albums. I got to buy this. I got, that's when I started doing a deep dive into every album. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So I was, I was probably like around early 20s or something when I started doing a real deep dive. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about why, what led you, had you known you always wanted to be involved musically, creatively? Uh, not really, um, but music was like, there's a couple like professions or areas where like I really respect it. Stand-up comedy, music, and sports. And so I remember one of the early things were like, I was a real quiet kid, but I'd always have a Walkman on. I'd be listening to music all the time. Sometimes I'd go to bed and listen to music all the time. So it was something that always kept me, not calm, but it was a matter of comfort and feeling okay. comfortable with music always playing. So that was probably the first time I was like, okay, I think I might want to go in this direction. And I ended up going into it in high school with DJ and stuff like that. Okay. That was probably the first inkling was just yeah. listening to music all the time. Why comedy, stand-up, sports, and music? Was it just you loved the entertainment value? What about those three things spoke to you? I think it was just internally. Like whenever I, I always played sports, I played baseball. And when I started playing basketball, and I think right maybe eighth grade or so, yeah. For me, that was a sport where I always had to listen to music, every sport. So I listen to music right before I play. And a lot of times I have a song going in my head as I'm playing the game. Sure. I don't know. I don't know why, but I just did. So I guess that's where sports and music cross for me. And comedy, I'd always listen to music before I'm doing performing comedy, after I'm done doing comedy. When you're actually doing stand-up comedy, you can't listen to music. But right. every time I but every time I write, I always have to have music playing. Anytime I write any joke, I think I have to have music playing. So I, I guess it's, I guess it probably started, I think, first with just watching movies where a lot of 80s movies I'd be watching, I wouldn't know who the artists were, but I remember scenes from movies, hearing that music over the images play, and yeah. those songs always stuck in my head. And I think that's when my mom used to always take me and my cousins to go see movies. So that's the area where I think we're like, pictures moving and music really together or something like that. Mm -hmm. So music drifted into sports, into stand-up comedy and the writing and everything I did. Like it became like the lifeblood music in every kind of creative endeavor I went into. Kevin Pollack is very clear talking about the look at me syndrome, right? That he says a lot of comedians have that look at me. But then when you look at them, like Kevin is very quickly to like in his podcast, he'll talk about, I've been in, oh, I don't know, 98 movies and six of them good. Once Whoa. you start get the attention, then you almost want to push it away. Were you a kid that always, did you seek attention? Were you always someone who entertained? No, I was like, literally when I told my mom that I was doing stand-up comedy, no one in the family thought I would. I'm like introverted, don't yeah. say much. So for me, it's about the art of it. I love crafting jokes and getting that reaction kind of twisting people's minds in that mm -hmm. same, thing, same thing when I do music, but twisting things in a different way. So I'm way, I've always been way more into the art of it as opposed to look at me. Like I know some comedians who just love to be on stage and they're really well liked. They'll just go on stage with no material and just yeah. go in different directions of whatever. Me, I, I don't want to get on stage unless I have something to talk about. So it's, it's more of a craft for me, not as much as a look at me type of thing. When, when did you start deciding you wanted to do that? For comedy? Yeah. Uh, I can tell you exactly. I was already producing music in college, and I got out, and I remember I got a regular job, 
because uh, I had my, my degrees in engineering. So I got a regular job. And I remember starting that job and being like, this job sucks. This regular life, this thing, whole thing sucks. And I'd always watched comedians for, a while, for like forever, as far as I was concerned. And I'd watch people and I always say, I don't know if I'm as funny as that guy, but I know I can write something as good as that. And I remember as a girl I was dating, Laura, she had tickets to go see The Roots. And she's like, do you want to go see The Roots? I'm like, I would, but there's a comedy open mic that's on the same day, same night. And I think I'd rather go to the, the stand-up comedy. She's like, you'd rather go to a, an open mic over The Roots? I'm like, yeah, I think I do. And from that day on, I, I was probably going up at least every week for probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine or so years doing stand-up. So what... Uh, one of the things that I find interesting is there's the Amazon Prime show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. And he said that Kevin is now doing a podcast about it. And he says that he, – he says, I say this with a lot of – he said someone early said, you've got – I see something in you, and once you – quit being crappy I think you'll be pretty good or something like that to Kevin Pollack and he said the reality is right till you find your voice and not just tell jokes right you have to find and you talked about that it isn't enough just to go it's crafting and telling something of yourself right a story and making something your point and making it entertaining what, where, what, when you did, what, talk to me a little bit about that journey. When did you talk about, you think you wanted to do this? What did you think you wanted to share? Or what did you know you want to share? I knew at first I wanted to share just the craft of telling a joke that catches people off guard. And I think the best example was, I remember seeing Dave Chappelle on Killing Him Softly, where he had the joke about Lewinsky. But at that point, there were a thousand Lewinsky jokes. And his yeah. joke was... I never thought, I always wanted to be famous, but I never thought of being so famous that someone sucks your dick and then they're famous. And I remember being, my mind, I've heard a thousand Winsky jokes. I've never heard one that good, that's that yeah. good. So that was how I originally attacked stand-up comedy, wanting to have that same feeling, that kind of turning everything on its head a little bit. And then a few years in, there would be t- at points where I would improv or riff on stage and more of my personality would come out. Not a lot, but a little bit over time. And I got more and more comfortable with that. I could never be like, I know some guys like TJ Miller, these guys who can just improv and they can do 40 minutes just off the top of their head. I can't do that. Yeah. But there's certain elements in certain areas where my personality would come in. And it, usually it, it tends to be for television and movies. And I'll go on tangents about some movie I saw or some TV show that'll wrap up any of the other jokes. But it's just a tangent of a portion of me. And then I got some other, a couple like, closing bits that are more personal like personal about my life but i don't usually go into those unless i'm doing like a long set so yeah. that's that's like how my journey where i started craft and gradually over time little bits and more parts of me would come out what i always find interesting and I, this is really not a question but i'd love your thoughts on this is you talked about you have a day gig and we were exchanging before we hit record and i I work in a call center. I, I've done lead. I've done presentations to people. And I usually people laugh, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll go, oh, you're funny. You should do this. And I'm like, 
there's work funny and there's on stage funny, right? Yeah. Like in work, you guys are really kind to me and what would not be versus going on stage and people sitting there, okay, MFR, make me laugh, right? Yeah. Versus just yeah. I'm doing a presentation about a quarterly review and I throw in something self-depression, self-effacing or something, then it's going to get a laugh. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an old saying. Everyone thinks they're funny. It's basically because if you're at work or with your friends, there's a certain level of context you have. So everyone knows you, them. There's an understanding that, hey, I'm going to have to see you again tomorrow and the day after. So there's the comedy element there is like an ongoing thing. And it's not as harsh as when if you're a stand-up comedian, you're pretty much going to be in that place for one to maybe five nights. It'll be a different crowd every night. And there's an expectation of this guy's got to make me laugh. That's your professional job. That's what you're supposed to do. And there's people who will every, not every time, but will try and deter you from that by heckling or whatever. So I guess the biggest difference would be like, it's like playing in front of a home crowd and playing in front of an away crowd. That's what comedians do. They're always on the road. They're yeah. always dealing with some type of riffraff while if you're at work or with your friends and everything, it's like a home game. They know you, you know them. There's a kind of an instant camaraderie as soon as you walk in there. While if you're a comedian on stage, it's almost it's adversarial a little bit everywhere you go. Yeah, and I think if you can get them on your side fairly quick, you can turn them into a home crowd. Oh, yeah. But you've got to do that quickly. And you've yeah. got to make them get it where, oh, I'm glad. And it does sound like a cliche, but okay. I paid for the sitter. I paid for parking. I've had to get tickets to get here. There's a two drink minimum. Okay, yeah. I'm out a hundred bucks. I need you to make it so it's worth my time, right? <laughs> exactly. And the other thing that's weird about comedy is if you let's say you're a big time comedian, you have multiple specials up, you can't go up on stage at a live show and do a bit you did on an album or on a TV special a year ago, two years ago. Cause immediately people be like, no. I could have listened to that on Spotify. I could have listened to that on TV. I want to hear your new stuff immediately. While if you're a musician, almost all the time, they want to hear that old song. They want to hear, they want to hear Prince just do Purple Rain the whole album. <laughs> so, it, so it's a totally weird, different dynamic as far as music and comedy like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is that. And I know, I remember that after the TV show, Seinfeld did do, I think it was like a classics tour. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm doing some of the old stand-up, right? And people oh. are like, oh, I know. It's a greatest hits show. Okay, I should know that. But yeah, it is. And boy, there is that fine line. I remember seeing George Lopez early in his career. Never oh. heard of him. We was on a Sunday night and the company I worked for had bought out the comedy club for Sunday night, right? That was our okay. event. Right. And and I went in with no expectations and I still say, you mean right now? I still, that Whoa. bit, right? Oh, you need help? What am I doing now? No, you mean right now? And so I think there is that, I you want to hear the hits, but you also want to hear the new stuff from a comedian and how do you make that work? Exactly. It's, it's a fine line where you're like, it's like you have to have a little bit of a landing on a runway. Really. 15 minutes or 10, 50% of stuff, ease them in, let them know, hey, you've seen my other stuff. 
here's a little bit of familiarity or here's a spin on the joke you heard when I did a yeah. tonight show or on Kim or whatever. Yeah. And then you work that all into new stuff to finish out for 75, 80% of it. So there, there is a measure of that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. And of course this is now based on context, sad and cringeworthy, but a writer, a blogger, a guy named Mark Evanier, I know, was talking about that he was, he went to see Bill Cosby two or three nights in a row. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was watching and all of a sudden he's he's doing prepared material. Wait a minute, when did he go from random talking to all of a sudden now he's on a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And he said... I didn't catch that transition. And so then he went another night and he said the next night it was the same thing. And then the third night he said Cosby recognized them and went another way, but still ended up doing that. And he said, it was like this, how do you, and we go back to Sam cook, right? This, when you're really good at stand up. You make it seem effortless, but it is anything short of that, isn't it? Exactly. I, speaking of that, like the ability to change between like improv material and different bits. Guy did shows with, he works on, I forgot, it's on CNN, but it's Dwayne Kennedy's name okay. like, from Chicago. And I was doing shows with him at Zany's years ago, opening up, and he was he would do material for about, it seemed like every night he had a completely different set. It might be 10 minutes, might be the same, but they'd be rearranged. And then he'd riff with the crowd for 10, 15 minutes and pull something else. So no show was the exact same. And eventually you could pick up and be like, okay, I understand he, he did that bit, he did that bit. That's just a new bit I've never heard. But then his improv in between and riffs he would go on was just, a, it was like a, a, an orchestra of just, he just had like hours of material and he could just hone in and lock in and be like, oh, I've got this bit from... 1996, I got this bit from 05. I can pull those in and wrap them in. And it was pretty darn amazing. It was was impressive being like, oh, this is what a seasoned comedian should be able to do. Yeah, it's almost like this improv jazz combo, right? That they're able to riff and do that and create magic. Where So we've talked a little about comedy. Let's talk about music production. And this is, it sounds like you went to school, you started doing that first. What about that spoke to your creativity? Why Uh, did you want to be, and I'm going to guess, if you liked structuring stories to tell a joke, is that engineering mindset, that structuring with music, the same reason why that appealed to you? I, you're probably right. I can remember in high school, my my cousin Lee, he, he's older than me, but he was a DJ, a lot of house music, but he like really liked Public Enemy. So we had a lot yeah. of common areas. And I remember it started with music production. Well, inherently, I would always listen just with hip hop. I listened to the beat first and I really, it took me three, four, five times listening to a song to really zone in on what the artist was saying because I just naturally just hear the production first. And I remember I was maybe a freshman in high school and my cousin was over there and Lee asked me, hey, do you know who produced this album? I'm like, I, I don't, what do you mean who produced the album? He's who produced it. I'm like, it's like ODB, this is ODB's album. I'm sure he produced it. He's on the cover. No, check the linear notes. It'll say it there. And I remember going through the notes and being like, Rizza from Wu-Tang because Wu-Tang's my favorite group. And I remember being like, 
oh my God, RZA did all these beats. He's, yeah, because that's who's credited. I'm like, okay, RZA's officially my favorite guy in Wu-Tang. And that's probably what I want to do. I want to produce music like that. Uh, so that was on my path, how I jumped into one of the beat to do production. Because when I, once I realized that's what a producer does, I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, what, in this journey, what have you learned about yourself? What have you, as you're doing this production and comedy, what are you learning about yourself? I've learned that I'm comfortable being introverted and just being alone with music. Uh, when I started, I, I felt, I guess like you're a teenager, you're never quite comfortable you're trying to find a comfort zone. Anytime I could sit down and do music or write, I felt completely comfortable. It didn't matter what else was going on in my life. I could just zone in on that for an hour or two or three or whatever. So it was a honing exercise for writing and music production. That was probably the biggest thing I learned. The other thing I learned really fast, musically stuff I just don't like to produce at all. And a lot of stuff I don't like to produce at all, there's stuff that I like to listen to, which is so weird. There's some house stuff I would never want to produce, but just the, the melodies or whatever, I'm like, that's cool. Or if it's like, like Johnny Cash Hurt, I would never try to produce anything like that. It's not, in my, not, it's not something I'd want to do, but I love listening to that. Being in music production and getting into that, it let me know, it further let me know what I, what I don't like. Do you feel you don't like it because you think you wouldn't be good at it? Or is it just you don't feel a creative, you don't feel a sense of creativity or satisfaction in working on it? Both. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's certain artists where I'll sample stuff and I, certain people I won't. If, I, if it's a song I really, I just don't want to sample it. I'm like, I cannot do this song better than the original way they did it. So I'll stay away from it. So a lot of stuff I'll sample will be more obscure left field stuff that I usually wouldn't listen to. I'll just breeze through stuff on a computer or whatever and be like, okay, oh, I like that part right there. Let me play with that. But for I remember like something like a Miles Davis or I love the sketches of Spain. There's certain parts that I just love. And I know producers who have sampled it, like DJ Premier sampled part of Sketches of Spain on a Jerry the Damager album. But I'm like, I would never, ever want to touch that at all. I just, I feel like an idiot trying to do it. And what was the second part of your question was, do I think, what was the second part? Yeah, no, I think you've answered it well, that okay. you said, do you, does it not strike you creatively or do you not think you would be good at it? But uh, it sounds like you feel like it just, it that isn't a playground you want to play in. Like exactly. if you're, my son will talk about, if you're going to wear white shoes on the football field, you got to bring it, right? Or mm -hmm. And so if you're going to cover hurt and i did snail you got to bring it yeah because, it's got to be you know, 10 out of 10 yeah and i i like that idea that you're going no this and also do you think why do you think you have the ear that says this will work and this doesn't both in a storytelling comedian because a lot of people will try to i hear people right? They try to force a joke or they try to force something in. And it sounds like you have a sense of, I think this is going to work. Let me try it. I'm pretty sure this won't work. Yeah. I, I don't know where that quite that ear comes from in both areas, music and comedy wise. I just think musically, I've always had a, a 
good ear for production and I've had a good ear for years. I remember I could do an album one time and I'd be like, okay, that's the single. That's the one they should drop for the single. And for certain groups, I was right like 99% of the time. So it's just, I don't know if it's just something inherent from listening to music. I can really only do that for hip hop because I just, okay. I know that genre so well. Yeah. Uh, but for other areas, I, I just, I wouldn't. But I guess it's just a natural ear of understanding the landscape of music at that time. Like the best example, I was like when Cash Money Records, I was in school in Florida and the producers, Manny Fresh, who I love. And I, I saw patterns where I could hear the way he would produce a track within seven seconds and be like, that's the single. I know it's a single. And they always put the single number two or three on the album. Sometimes number four. So I could just, I've picked up on patterns and I just picked up on the sound of what was going on in hip hop at that time for picking that out. And joke wise, I'm, I, I do that where like, oh, I, I never try and force a joke in usually. I learned pretty early doing gigs that it's, it should feel organic. It just should. You shouldn't try and force your views or force anything in there. And a, a, if, you're in a, if you're like an unknown comedian, it's really hard to go in some dark areas depending on the town you're in. Like I remember I was doing shows in Madison, Wisconsin, and the headliner told me up front, he said, you'll be fine as long as you don't talk about religion or politics. And he pointed it out, and there was another guy on the show that week, and he tried to jump in a religion, and you could just feel the entire crowd tighten up. And he had to back out of that. Exactly. He had to back out of the whole thing. I always try to make it a mission of mine, just stay really organic, stay true to who you are, and present that. And don't try and shove anything down people's throats. Yeah. Is there a music genre that you haven't played with yet that you in the back of your mind would like to play at a little bit of electronic music. Okay. Uh, I feel like I'd have to slow the pitch down on everything. It's just my personality, but that's an area I like to play with just because is there so many like highs and quick motions, quick motions in that type of music. That's an area. And then there's also kind of country. There's certain, I've listened to a lot of country, not a lot, but a good amount of country, I think. And there's areas where I'm like, that sounds really cool right there, but I'd have to sample it and tweak it to get it quite right. So that's an area. Those are two genres where I like, I'd like to play it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. You put your unique twist on it. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about musical influence. You haven't talked about comedian influences. Who are people that either have influenced you or you admire? There's a lot of those. I guess my two biggest influences as far as writing-wise would be Stephen Wright and Richard Pryor. I consider Chappelle to be the new Richard Pryor, probably the best living comedian around. I also love Bill Burr. Writing-wise, it's probably Seinfeld because he's such... He's like the, a hyper version of my early comedy. He is so into the craft of just changing a word, changing a line there. It's like, I don't find him to be the funniest guy ever, but the craftsmanship that he puts in to jokes and presenting jokes is it's almost unparalleled because he's just a, a complete nerd about that. Still lo loves Louis C.K. Even after all the allegations, I still buy specialties great. Yeah. I'm trying to think who else. There's a lot of comedians I really like. Those are probably the top ones I think I've already named. Yeah. So I graduated high school in 77. And I can remember getting Richard Pryor 8-tracks. That's how <laughs> old I am. <laughs> and we would be back in my bedroom 
with my uncles <laughs> listening to the Richard Pryor eight tracks because <laughs> we didn't want to play it in front of the rest of the family. Yeah. And I laughed. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure I've laughed that hard since, but I remember at 15, 16, hearing those eight tracks, hearing him tell that story, watching those specials. And I really, when there's been a lot of great comedians, right? Yeah. Chris Rock makes me think and Eddie Murphy, some of those films. And yeah. like I said, all kinds of great comedians. But God, Richard Pryor was just something amazing. He was a one-on-one. -one. He was basically, to me, the kind of guy who changed comedy. It shifted where it's, it became less jokey and became like, more comedically serious, but still more, it was more like adult. It was just, it was just an yeah. adult and not in a dirty way, but just like an evolved version of the craft. Um, yeah. And it was one time, like when I first, like when I was starting to listen, it was in the eighties. I remember I'd be in my aunt's place and my mom was like in, in, at school or something. And I used to fall asleep and I'd always get woken up by the tonight show music. That's what, dun, 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 dun. And I remember seeing Eddie Murphy, not knowing who he was, being like, who's this black dude with the skinny tie? He's really funny. Yeah. And that was, and I, I, years later, I realized like, oh my God, you saw like him doing little, he was like almost, he was prior S, different, but like you could see he was exceedingly influenced by Richard Pryor. And just a quick side story. I remember when Eddie Murphy Raw came out in 87, I, I think I was eight or nine years old. And my mom liked Richard Pryor, so I asked her, can I go see Eddie Murphy Raw? She's old oh, no. There's no way you're going to go see Eddie Murphy Raw. You're not going to. But I was staying with my dad that weekend. And I, so I asked my dad, can we go see Eddie Murphy's Raw? And I don't know if he didn't know who Eddie Murphy was or he just didn't care. Sure. So he took me to go see Eddie Murphy Raw. And I just remember about 10 minutes in the movie, I looked over at him, and I just had a thought in my head. I didn't say it. I was just like, I don't think I should be here listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was just kind of like this, like, oh, well, well okay. we got another hour left. Don't <laughs> tell your to... mom. Don't tell your mom. <laughs> exactly, yeah. One of my favorite stories is I remember prior being on The Tonight Show, and he said the worst thing was when you're doing two shows tonight, and I'm in about halfway through a joke. He says, and I realize I've said it already once tonight, but did I say it at the previous gig set or did I say it in this one? And then, of course, him being fun, he'd stop and he says, my audience staring at me. Yeah, you've already said that in. And I just thought of that. That wasn't a joke. That was the reality, right? We've all yeah. done that where have I already told the story? Yeah, I, I, I've actually done that. I remember at Zany's, they do, on Saturday night, they do three shows. And I remember the one of the first times I did it, it was a second or third show. And I was going halfway through a joke. I'm like, oh, crap. Did I already say this in this set or was it the previous set? And after that, I had, I, I don't remember what I did, but I remember from that point on, when I ever had two or three shows, I made sure like these first 25 minutes I'm going to do, it's going to be the same 25 minutes then I'll do some other stuff because I, I just, I, yeah. otherwise I'd be mixing stuff up left and right. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So what's next for you career-wise? What do you want to do both in music and comedy? 
music wise, I got some, so I got putting out an EP at the end of this year myself. I got about five or six tracks from Chicago artist, Chris Crack that hopefully should be on. He's supposed to drop two albums later this year. So hopefully I got a bunch of tracks that should be on there. Comedy wise, I'm working right now on a treatment to get to a managing production company uh, with a co-writer buddy of mine. So hopefully have that to this manager within the next couple weeks to hopefully get that push to have a pilot and trying to write that as a full on show TV yeah. show. So I've now, come out on that. How often are you touring? Not anymore. I used, I used to tour a lot. This is probably okay. like nine, ten years ago where I was okay. basically all through the Midwest. But okay. for right now, I'll, I'll pop up at a local comedy club here. I know I got a gig at a Northside club here in Chicago. I want to say 23rd of September. Okay. Uh, that's the next one I got coming up and some other like small gigs in between. Okay. Yeah. So what, tell me a little bit what you can about the pilot. What are your, what are you thinking? Basically it's, I I wrote a a series of short stories when I was living in LA on the weekends. I used to work as a bouncer and I was like right in the middle of West Hollywood. So it's like a happening bar celebrities every once in a while, but it's basically just details of the kind of debauchery quasi terrible things that people would do as a, on a night out with whatever kind of alcohol, whatever kind of drug and me having to deal with that as a staff and me as a bouncer. And it's coupled with me trying to break into TV writing and dealing with that whole process at the time. I think I was managed by three arts, which is actually was Louis CK's company and CAA. So it's trying to crack into the TV writing market as a big black dude, which does not help you. And (laughs) while being a big black dude will help you as a bouncer. So it's like kind of that dichotomy and that life is like a half hour dark comedy. Session. Okay. That sounds fun. That yeah, sounds good. Harjeet, what should I've asked you that I haven't? I think you've asked a lot of really good questions. I can't think of hey, anything off the top of my head. Yeah. I have had a blast. I, this Me has too. been so much fun. I, I, I think you tell great stories and I could see how you'd be very good on stage. All right. I'm going to let you plug and how to reach you. But before that, I'm going to ask you the merry questions. If you are a fan of Harjeet mm-hmm. and you're checking out this podcast because of his work, I end every podcast with the merry question. What that is, Jay Armstrong, who was an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area, would give his class the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's song, Thunder Road. They would talk about, they would treat it as a poem. They would look at the lyrics. They would talk about the themes, the imagery that Bruce produced using that. And then he would ask the class at the end of the two days, does Mary get in the car? So that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Now, preface here, like I said, I'm not good at lyrics. So I I get production first. So I had to listen to the song two, three times. And I believe she did get in the car. Okay. That, that's my opinion. I believe so. I'm not 100% on that. I started to Google just to see what was going on. And I Googled once and I saw, oh, this has been a whole thing for a while. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, let me not. I don't want to yeah. look at it anymore. Yeah, no, so, no. Yeah. It, it, this is purely, like I said, this is, I had never thought of that till Jay was on the podcast six uh, years ago. And cool. I was like, of course she gets in the car. Hello. I believe in happy endings. But about half my guests say, no, she doesn't. They say that he doesn't present enough of a case or that he doesn't. And the other half go, yeah, she does. Why do you think she does? 
number one, because it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> That's right. Fair enough. And it's Thunder Road. And I'm thinking, there's no way she has to get it. She has, you're on Thunder. You have to get in the car. You can't leave her there. I did, yeah. I just, and when I'm listening to the lyrics, it, it seems a little bit ambiguous as lyrically, yes. but I'm thinking about it. I'm just like, she has, especially the time of when that song, like if that came out, if this was like grunge 90s, I'd be like, okay, maybe you leave her out there. Fine, leave her on the road. But I think she has, she has to get in. She has to. That is a great answer. I really appreciate it. All right, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? Basically, Instagram, Twitter, it's just Outlaw Haji. Uh, that's okay. the handle from all those. That's the easiest way. Okay, very nice. This was wonderful, my friend. I really yes. had a great time. I hope you had you a good time. Thank you so much. Listeners, go check out his place at social medias. Check out some of his work. But for now, I want you to be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.